1849, after attending a public execution, Charles Dickens sat down to write a letter to the Times. Thousands upon thousands of upturned faces, so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness, that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the shape he wore and to shrink from himself as fashioned in the image of the devil, he wrote of the gathered crowd. As it turned out, his attendance at that execution would lead to more than one landmark moment. These are, as you'll see, not exactly moments of forensic inspiration, but they did abolish a practice I've railed against on this show, as well as introduce one idea to fiction that is a pivotal part of this podcast. It is, in fact, right there in the name. Welcome to Detectives by the Decade! This is the podcast that looks at the detectives, the scientists, and the cases that gave us forensics as we know it today. I'm Christy Baxter. Before we dive in, of course, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. It really, really helps. And now, Season 2, Episode 3. A Dickens of a Murder In Switzerland, in 1821, was born a girl named Marie de Roux. Marie's parents passed before she reached her mid-twenties, and so in 1843, at the age of 22, she found employment working as a maid for Lady Anna Polk, wife of a member of British Parliament. As you can see, she had relocated. Lady Polk passed away, and Maria moved into the service of Lady Blantyre, daughter of the Duchess of Sutherland. Now, that sounds like, oh, just another noble, but the Duchess was actually mistress of the robes for several years, which put her in charge of the Queen's jewelry and clothes. And holy heck, I just found my 19th century dream job. And in the same vein, Lady Blantyre's mother was pretty much best friends with Queen Victoria. And while Maria was in Lady Blantyre's service, the lady was living in her parents' home, Stafford House, where Queen Victoria would come calling quite frequently. So this was quite the position for Maria, and her life was very different than so many others in this time period. Keep in mind that travel, especially long distance, was far less accessible in those days. 
tourism was in its infancy. Many people were born somewhere, and they would live in that same somewhere, and sooner or later die in that same somewhere without ever having strayed farther than the next village over. But in the service of Lady Blantyre, that was not Maria's life. She got to travel, and she was surrounded by wealth and luxury. Although she likely was in a look-don't-touch kind of position most of the time. Nonetheless, she got to live in close proximity to royalty and nobility, she traveled with her mistress, and she met many people. Some sources say that was how she ran in to one Patrick O'Connor. Patrick O'Connor was a customs inspector, in name, but in practice he made his money through smuggling and money lending. And in his personal life, he didn't mind a little secrecy and subterfuge, both of which he employed in his relationship with Marie de Rue. And she didn't seem to mind that he was 20 years older than her, and she certainly didn't mind that he had some money, no matter how he got it. The two swung in and out of each other's lives for the next several years. And then there was, of course, a complication. Frederick George Manning. Maria was also seeing him. Although he was just a guard on the Great Western Railway, and thus not as flush with cash as O'Connor. But he was the same age as her and was fairly easily led. Oh, and as he insisted, that whole man of few means lifestyle he was rocking wouldn't last long. He had an inheritance coming his way. His father had passed in 1845, and while Manning's mother was the recipient of most of his property, it would then go to Manning when she died. And he seemed to be banking on that. Unfortunately, in Maria's eyes at least, Manning proposed while she was waiting for a proposal from O'Connor. O'Connor was not unaware of this. She outright told him what she wanted in letters she wrote to him. But he didn't seem ready or willing to give her that commitment. So she went ahead with the marriage to Manning in 1847 and hoped for a happily ever after. But happily ever after was not to be. I mean, have you figured out this is a historical true crime podcast yet? History podcasts rarely end well. True crime stories? Even less so. The newlywed Mannings settled into a nice house in Bermondsey, a section of London. And Manning wasn't entirely broke. 
He was said to have around 400 pounds when they met, which is about 52,000 in U.S. dollars today. And then there was O'Connor. O'Connor was not out of the picture. Cheeky devil that he was, he wrote Maria a letter after her wedding. Explaining that really he'd been just about to propose when she'd said yes to Manning. Now, anyone who believes him, raise your hand. Yeah, my hands are so not in the air. I'm I'm doing handstands. Then there was the trouble with Manning's job. Not long after their marriage, Manning's employment with the Great Western Railway was no more. And while we don't know exactly why, we do know some of the theories involve a robbery. So, in need of an income, the Mannings left their London home for Fred's hometown of Taunton. About one hundred and fifty miles away, there they used Frederick's money to buy an inn called the White Hart. Some accounts have Maria still keeping in contact with O'Connor, and by contact I mean contact. It didn't seem like Manning was terribly bothered by this either. He may have even given it permission. Whether that permission was implicit or explicit, we don't know. Whatever the case, the three even had dinner together at the Mannings' home on occasion. And oh, to be a fly on that wall! But if Maria was having her. Fun on the side, well, Frederick was too, and it was in 1849 that things really started to fall apart, and it starts with a train robbery. In 1849, there was a train robbery on the Great Western Railway. And the bandit or bandits made off with, reports say, loot worth four thousand pounds from the mail car. That's over half a million U.S. dollars today. And then, the very next day, there was another robbery on the same train line. Going the opposite direction. Is it still returning to the scene of the crime if the scene is going the other way, as it was during your last visit? But it seems like, having memories longer than those of goldfish, the security forces were on alert on the second robbery. I mean, give it a week for memories to fade. And adrenaline to recede, or just don't rob trains. Also an option. 
So the guard actually stops and thinks for a second. And he realizes there is only one access point for the mail car. And that was through the first class cars. Sure enough, once a search was conducted, the culprits were flushed out. Edward Nightingale and Henry Poole. But, you ask, how did they know these were the culprits? Well, I'm not one to kink shame, but if the grappling hooks and masks weren't intended for a robbery, I don't know what Nightingale and Poole meant to do with them. Side note, Nightingale and Poole would be an excellent 70s buddy cop show, but it's for sure set in a tiny little backwards village in England. Sort of like hot fuzz, but with more sideburns and bell-bottoms. Oh, and after a tiny research rabbit hole, I found out that hot fuzz was shot in the village of Wells, which is only 30 miles from Taunton, where the Mannings settled with their inn. So, someone make that show for me because it feels so meant to be. Now, you might think at this point, boy, how did she get so off track? And by she, I mean me. I mean, I've barely mentioned the Mannings, so unless they were actually dressing up as Nightingale and Poole, where do they come in? Well, it turns out that Nightingale and Poole were frequent flyers at the White Hart, the inn the Mannings owned. Nightingale even liked to borrow Frederick Manning's name from time to time. To which I say, you need a nom de plume, you make one up. You don't steal it from the innkeeper. But the fact that the train robbers hung out at the White Hart became a piece of local gossip, and so the upright citizens stopped going there. And then the gossip swung around to focus in on Maria, claiming that she'd given the cops the heads up about the train job. So the downright citizens took their business elsewhere? I guess downright citizens. If we have upright citizens, everything should be equal. We should have downright citizens, too. And that was it. The end of the White Heart for the Mannings. Back to London they went, and specifically, back to Bermondsey. After some further bumps in the road, they ended up muddling through. And by muddling, I mean Maria worked while her husband, jobless and growing a bit unstable, drank the day away. And when she could... Maria fled to the arms of her old lover, Patrick O'Connor. But something was brewing at the Manning House. Something dark. Life hadn't turned out like either of them had planned. Their dreams of fortune and luxury were never realized, 
and faithfulness and trust had long since fled the marriage. It turned out that the lack of money and surplus of romantic liaisons both pointed to a solution to their problems. Patrick O'Connor The trouble brewing didn't go unnoticed. Maria took in boarders to supplement her income from dressmaking, and one of them would later report an unsettling conversation with Frederick Manning about chloroform and other drugs. And then there were some other oddities, like the bushel of quicklime delivered to the Manning house on July 23rd, 1849. The household received another delivery not long after. A shovel on August 8th. Then Maria invited Patrick over for dinner. You know, two lovers catching up over a nice roast. Witnesses spotted him walking to the Manning's house and also having a nice cigar at the back door. Patrick O'Connor didn't show up to work the next day, or the day after that. Patrick's co-worker and cousin, William Flynn, checked out O'Connor's place and asked around. The landlady mentioned that, while she hadn't seen O'Connor for a few days, she had seen Marie Manning two nights in a row. Next, two men visited the Mannings looking for O'Connor. They said they worked for O'Connor's employer, but once they left, Frederick Manning freaked out, thinking they were police. So Marie said, okay, we'll run for it then. She sent him off to sell some furniture And then she grabbed everything else and hightailed it out of there. And that everything else included all the thousands of pounds of stocks and bonds and jewelry she'd swiped from O'Connor's place. Witnesses later reported that she'd departed in a cab, along with three or four trunks. When Marie double-crosses... She goes all in. And when Frederick returned, he discovered that very fact. So he took whatever was left, and he took off as well. Thus, there was no one home when the police set up surveillance on the house. So there was no one to object when a constable hopped in a window and did a quick casual search. But when the Mannings and O'Connor all continued to be MIA, the police decided to be a little less casual. They did a search with two constables this time. Really, up in the ante, guys. But this was enough because Police Constable Barnes was sharp-eyed enough to notice the cement in the back kitchen was a bit damp. 
So they got to digging, and what do you know? They found the quicklime Marie had purchased. And in that quicklime was Patrick O'Connor. So about quicklime. The chemical name for it is calcium oxide, and it's what you get left over after heating limestone and similar materials in a kiln. It's pretty unstable, and it's also pretty handy for body disposal. But not, as many people used to think, because it disposed of the body, but because it helped with some of the side effects of disposing of the body, like the smell and the attraction of flies and scavenging animals. It does this through stopping or slowing putrefaction. So therefore, it actually helps preserve the bodies. Fun fact, real quick. Quicklime was used for illumination on stage before electric lights became a thing, as it reacts with carbon dioxide in the air and produces heat and light. This is where we get the phrase, in the limelight, as in the center of attention. So Quicklime had done a nice job of preserving Patrick O'Connor's body, and the police found him. Now, they had to figure out the whereabouts of the Mannings so as to question them regarding the dead man under their kitchen floor. Now, Marie, when she fled with her copious luggage, had left two of her trunks behind at the London Bridge station under a false name. She took the third trunk with her to Edinburgh via a different station. But, of course, she didn't do any of that in a vacuum. So the cab driver who'd been her transport for all this running about came forward. And that's how the police tracked Marie to Edinburgh. And all she had to do was switch cabs between the London Bridge and her departure station. When they found the trunks, they found some of O'Connor's stuff in her trunks. And that's actually not a euphemism. So when they tracked her down in Edinburgh, they discovered that she was already in jail. When she tried to sell some of O'Connor's stocks, she tried to pass herself off as a Scotswoman. But being from Switzerland originally, she had rather a hard time making that convincing. Add in the warnings that had already gone out to the financial community about stock that had been stolen in London, and this was a communist parade. And by that I mean, red flags everywhere. Then there was her partner in holy matrimony and crime, though not, as we've seen, 
her partner in escape attempts. While Marie had fled north, Frederick had headed south, specifically to the island of Jersey. Someone he knew had spotted him on the boat, and from there all it took was hanging around and listening to the local gossip to track him down. The Scotland Yard detective, who'd had the pleasure of eavesdropping in Jersey pubs to find him, also got the pleasure of answering in the affirmative when Frederick Manning, while being arrested, asked, Is the wretch taken? Well, she was, in fact. And they ended up reunited again, this time in Horsemonger Lane Jail although I doubt they shared a bed or a cell. Manning spilled pretty easily once in custody. According to his tale, here's what happened. When Patrick O'Connor came over for dinner, Marie waited until his back was turned before shooting him in the head right behind the ear. That apparently didn't do the job. So when Frederick Manning came in, O'Connor was still alive and groaning on the floor. Manning then grabbed a chisel and delivered some solid blows to O'Connor's head. And then he was dead. As for motive... It's pretty obvious Marie was in it for the money. But with Frederick, it gets a little hazier. He flat out told the police, when confessing, that he'd never really liked O'Connor anyway. So, was it jealousy of O'Connor's relationship with Marie? Greed for the man's money? Or fear? See... Murder was, of course, a capital crime. But it was also a capital crime to botch a murder. That's right. You could hang for attempted murder. And you'd probably stand a higher shot of swinging since the victim was around to talk. So fear could have played a part if he worried Marie might try to pin the attempted murder on him. Or maybe it was all three. As far as the press was concerned, though, it was all Marie's idea. And her hen-pecked husband just went along with it to get her to stop her gosh-darned nagging. Their trial didn't last very long and essentially consisted of the two of them pointing the finger at each other like they were reenacting that Spider-Man cartoon meme. The trial itself took only two days and deliberation lasted a whopping 45 minutes. Both were found guilty on October 26th 1849. Marie took her frustrations with the verdict out on the jury, screaming, You have treated me like a wild 
beast of the forest. Whether this was sincere or not is up in the air, as she later discussed her time in court from the perspective of an actress seeking praise of her performance. Both the Mannings were kept in the condemned cells for two weeks. Marie spent some time on her correspondence, shooting off a letter to none other than Queen Victoria herself, since she had met her a few years back. And Queen Victoria, it said, looked into the case, but in the end agreed with the jurors who had treated Marie like a wild beast. There was no exoneration to be found in Buckingham Palace. So Marie went another route. Now, due to a suicide by a condemned female prisoner a few years back, a close eye was kept on Marie, with three female guards keeping her company in her cell day and night. Despite this constant suicide watch, she managed to pull off an attempt. After she'd grown out her nails a bit, she waited for her guards to drift off to sleep and then tried to claw her own neck open. The three guards were able to stop her from puncturing her own windpipe with her nails, but just barely. Execution day came at last, and while the Mannings had surely been dreading it, the rest of London couldn't wait. That's right, get your tickets and pack a picnic lunch, darlings. We're a-going to a hanging. I mean, who doesn't want to spend a nice Tuesday morning watching the state put people to death? Between 30,000 and 50,000 people came to see the Mannings swing. Supposedly, this was a record-setting crowd, although in a previous episode in Season 1, we had Francois Clavassier with an estimated 40,000 attending his execution. So I guess it depends on which side of the range is the truth. The crowd size was probably no more important to anyone than it was to the woman who actually was killed by the press of the crowd. I don't even have a sarcastic comment. I just... There it is. Right there. Two men were also injured. And they needed nearly 1,000 police officers to manage the crowd. The crowd that included Charles Dickens, who rented a room with a view of the rooftop gallows, and hosted a dinner party there the night before. Now, whether the Mannings kissed and made up on the scaffold as some stories go, is a question that will never be answered. Both died easily, as the public would put it, 
which of course disappointed the crowds. And Marie wore a dress of black satin edged with black lace, black silk stockings on her legs, and a black lace handkerchief she carried that she then asked the executioners to blindfold her with. She would have, in death, a profound effect on the fashion industry. After Marie Manning wore black satin to her own hanging, women would avoid wearing it for the next 30 years. But someone else would be wearing it, or something else, rather. That being Marie's wax figure at Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors. And it's entirely possible, maybe even very likely, that the wax figure wore not a replica of the dress, but the dress itself, sold to the museum by the hangman. Now, it's said that this public hanging, or at least the jovial and joking attitude of the spectators, had a profound effect on Dickens, who said in a letter to the Times, I was a witness of the execution at Horsemonger Lane this morning when the two miserable creatures who attracted all this ghastly sight about them were turned quivering into the air, there was no more emotion, no more pity, no more thought that two immortal souls had gone to judgment than if the name of Christ had never been heard in this world. Dickens' experience at the hanging did eventually spur a landmark change in the British justice system. He joined together with other big names and bright minds, and by 1868, they had succeeded in getting public hangings abolished. And Dickens would also go on to use Marie Manning as sort of inspiration for the character Hortense, a French maid, in his novel Bleak House. So, the forensic work in the actual Manning case isn't particularly groundbreaking, I'll admit. P.C. Barnes simply noticed the wet cement, and voila, the murder was discovered. As for finding the murderers, well, Marie was already in custody, and Scotland Yard found Frederick with the aid of a little neighborhood gossip. But, for all that, we can definitely say that the work by Inspector Bucket in the case of the murdered Mr. Tulkinghorn in the novel Bleak House didn't exactly reach the pinnacle of brilliance either. Inspector Bucket simply sat down with Hortense and could envision her committing the murder. Crack gumshoe work, it is not. It is, however, 
the first time the word detective was used in fiction. Thank you so much for listening. My, I've decided it's not creepy because I've done it for three episodes now. Shout out goes out to my listeners in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Don't forget, this is not the only place where you can find me. I am also on the show Old Timey Crimey, where we talk about historical murders, and use a few filthy words in the process with my co-hosts, Amber and Scott. You can also find me on Short Stories, Short Podcast, with my friend Chris Garcia. Links for all of those and our social media, where you can find us on Instagram and Facebook as Detectives by the Decade, or on Twitter as By the Decade, can also be found there. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you in two weeks. Detectives by the Decade is researched, written, and produced by me, Christy Baxter. Music by Kevin McLeod. Music El Fios. And Alexander Nakarada. My sources for this episode are capitalpunishment.org, accessed via Murderpedia, Kieran Conliffe on headstuff.org, Wikipedia, Tavistock Books Blog, Amanda Foreman in Smithsonian Magazine, Written in Blood by Colin Wilson, and Kate Myers Emery on Bones Don't Lie. Marie took her frustrations with the verdict out on the jury, screaming, You have treated me like a... No, you have, you have, you have, you, you, you. You have treated me like... No. You have treated me like a wild beast of the forest.